Hello, can you hear me? Hey, man. Yep, I can hear you. Great. Scott, can you hear me? I can hear you. How, How's it going? Good, man. Good. Have a good weekend? Weekend? What do you mean? Oh, today's Monday. Oh, shit, it's Monday. Yeah, yeah, it's good to the week. Wild. Oh, wow, I don't know. Uh, uh, one second, just making sure we're getting everybody up here. Yeah, I got Mar- Mario. I listened, to, I listened to about half or two thirds of the replay with uh, with Alex Jones. That's, that must have been pretty crazy. Did you hear? Mario, I was also there. I was also there with Andrew and Vivek taking a pee. That was uh, one of the most phenomenal. Yeah, that part. That's 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 some pretty classic Twitter space. Like that's got to go in like the Twitter space Hall of Fame or something like that. I feel like. Especially if he becomes president. Can you imagine if he becomes president? Right, yeah. If he becomes president, that's like pretty massive, I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> I completely missed it. What happened? <laughs> and I took a pee. Vivek, Vivek took a pee live on Twitter Spaces. You literally heard. And, and, but, but, like purposely? Or uh, like did he not know he, he was he meant to mute himself? No, I, couldn't, yeah. I, couldn't, I couldn't mute him either because it was glitching with too many people. So I couldn't mute, I couldn't mute anyone. Uh, so he was peeing and I could hear him and I kept trying to mute him, but it didn't work. <laughs> Uh, that's what we'll be, you'll be remembered for. Good job. Just just getting just getting Alex and Elon to go back and forth on and Andrew Tate to just to go back and forth on the you know humanist versus you know anti-humanist and that like this is the sort of framework of power that is sort of the most critical for humanity right now. I mean, that was just a pretty wild, that's a pretty wild conversation. Maya, how did this come together, Mario? I, I got to ask because that seems like a pretty uh, random group. No, so I, uh, I, we got Alex to come on. So he's obviously back on, on Twitter. So the first thing he did was uh, announce that on Which our That show. was because of Tucker, right? I, I, I listened to him on Tucker. Yeah, yeah. And we're, we're talking oh, to Tucker. Yeah. Tucker could be coming on. Um, yeah, we'll announce when Tucker's going to be on soon. But so we're talking, so we told Alex, like, hey, you're not, you know, coming on Twitter, just do it on our show. Right? The team was messaging him. And uh, so he accepted. So then I pinged Elon on him, like, hey, man, I think that would be good for you to come on because I know that they don't, they have never spoken. So Elon he says, okay, cool. He jumps on. And then uh, the rest come on. Like, I don't think, unless, I don't think my team invited them. Vivek always comes on whenever there's a space that's relevant to him. Uh, Tate, I invited. Uh, Andrew and, and his brother Tristan, and they both came on. Um, who else was there? There is uh, uh, Patrick Van David. I didn't what, what, was, what, was, what was Suleiman doing there? Like, um, he had like all these amazing people, and then they had like Suleiman there. Like, I, I was like, wow, what are you trying to do? Like, of all people to put Suleiman there, probably one of the most hated people on, on, on Twitter right now. Yeah, but I, 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 uh, I've got respect for people that helped me to get to where I am, so and I've got respect for him. He's never done bad by me. Um, and he helped me moderate and co-host some of He was there when I was getting all the hate. Like when, when no one else was by my side, he was one of the few that didn't give a shit and was fighting everyone. He put out the thread and he helped me with the private investigation. I think it was embarrassing to everyone such a big space, to be honest. Yeah, but like, I, I, I wish I had just, if you told me we were going to be peeing, I would have showed up. <laughs> that was the, the only part that was probably unplanned, man. Yeah, I didn't get invited to that. Ridiculous. Uh, what about us? We've single-handedly carried you to pay. Nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mario, would be, Mario would be nothing without us. Man. Yeah. Really. It's a, really. It's a fun space, but it's gonna be a big one. I don't think I'm allowed to announce it, but there could be a really big one today, which is fun, like blood pieces. Um. But yeah, it was a 
It was a pretty, uh, pretty fun. I'll, I'll be checking the mail because I'm sure my invite <laughs> yeah, to this will last one that long. But, but I'm sure, I'm sure you'll have it. I'm sure you've got to check your DMs more often. <laughs> cool. All right, you want to kick off the show, Scott? Ryan? Yeah, we should probably actually talk about crypto, right? <laughs> I guess. Oh. And I think the, uh, the, the story, uh, obviously, we've had pretty epic runs here uh, on Bitcoin and a lot of other uh, coins as well. The entire market has been booming, uh, pushed as far as 45,000. But uh, we closed the weekly candle last night. It was the eighth green week in a row. I actually jokingly tweeted with no prophecy in, in mind saying when correction. And uh, I went to bed at like 8.30 last night. And apparently five minutes later, uh, we got the correction. Bitcoin dropped from roughly just below 44 to 40 in a matter of it's seemingly minutes when I looked at it. But it seems like, you know, in an hourly candle, uh, bounced right back to where we are. Probably just sub 42,000 at the moment. Uh you know, obviously, it immediately triggers the bears to claim that they were right, and the bear market has recommenced, and it was just manipulation and all the fun narratives. Uh, but it seems to me like this was just a massive, or a actually massive, maybe overstated, but a big liquidation flush once again, uh, where we had you know longs piled up. You saw over three hundred million dollars flushed, and in, in this case, when you look at it, I'm looking at Coin Glass right now. Uh, you look at the 24-hour, it was overall 86% longs, OKX 90%, uh, Binance 80%, Huobi 92% was all on the long side. Even last week on the push up, when we had the massive liquidations, it was actually, which is crazy to show you how degenerate people are, a lot of longs and shorts were getting liquidated. You would have thought it would be only shorts in that move, but this was basically all longs. I mean, Rand, is that aligned with what you're seeing? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, this. I, I, I'm skeptical to call this a correction because it wasn't a correction. A correction doesn't bounce back that, that quickly. Um, this was just a liquidation act, and and the the leverage is crazy. The leverage is still higher than it's been. Hold on, let me actually get the levels here quickly in front of me. So on Bitcoin, the leverage. Okay, on Bitcoin, it's kind of come down a little bit. I mean, you could say, but um, on on the altcoins, the leverage is still way above i mean the last time that we had this kind of leverage was before luna so the leverage the leverage now is higher than it was pftx it's it, the leverage now the last time leverage was as high on altcoin was luna and that's after this the, the liquidation act. so i think it's like i'm not sure that this is the end of the um of the pullback i'm not sure this is the end of it but on the other hand you have this magnet, which is the ETF, and for as long as this ETF keeps pulling, pulling us up, you know, I just can't see how this market comes down. The one other thing, though, is you see a lot of ecosystems bouncing back really quickly. So Avalanche bounced back really, really, really quickly. Um, uh, Immutable X jumped back really quickly. Uh, Beam jumped back really quickly. I think mean, that's just kind of showing you um, everything. AVAX and Injective both. At about a dollar at the beginning of this year. It's now 24, 23, 25, somewhere in there. Incredible, incredible. Absolutely, absolutely incredible. And then, and then of course, there's airdrop season coming up. So like there's airdrop season on Injective, airdrop season on Kujira, airdrop season a lot, a lot of there. And people are now realizing the power of airdrops. In fact, one of the things I covered on my show today was we spoke about how airdrops, every time that there's an airdrop, so we had the blur airdrop. And straight off the airdrop, Bitcoin went up 80%, 18%. Then we had the Arbitrum airdrop, and then you can clearly see a pump of 18%. Then you had the PIS airdrop, and Bitcoin went up 23%, which is the combined, the combination of the PIS and the GITO airdrop. 
And so what we're realizing is that these airdrops are exactly like a stimulus. Initially, there's no money, and then you airdrop money onto users, and that pumps the market. So one of the market tools that we're looking at now is saying, is saying that uh, uh, the airdrops are... Um, uh, uh, and if you can forecast when the airdrops are going to happen, you can kind of forecast the pumps. And uh, I mean, we've tested it now with these four. We're going to test it with, with some more big ones, but it just feels like the airdrop stimulates is like a, a stimulus check that drops onto all the users, not only of the market, but also of the individual chain. So the individual chain tends to pump much higher than other chains um, uh, when you get these airdrops. Yeah, my airdrop season is so over my head. I didn't even know that it was a thing. Okay, Boomer. Uh, Gareth, is this aligning with what you're seeing with the market? Awesome. I don't know. Yeah, the, this the, just just before, but, but the, on, the, on the airdrop point, I, it just doesn't, like the liquidity doesn't make sense, right? Like for an airdrop to be able to impact the price of Bitcoin. Like they, the, uh, I think it's more... Before you say that, correlation rather than causation. No, before you say that, if somebody drops a billion dollars into the market and all of a sudden people have a billion dollars more than they had yesterday, do you not think that that could pump up the price? But run, it's it isn't it a billion dollars that can be sold into the market? Shouldn't it drop the price? I'm I'm struggling to follow your logic here. No, it's a billion dollars that is dropped. It's like stimulus. It's a billion dollars of money that didn't exist in the market, not existing in the sure, market. Sure, but stimulus, like you, you... Yeah, but that, US, that, that, how, much, yeah, but how much of it is told? God, yeah. US, US dollar stimulus makes the dollar inflate. It makes the price of the dollar go down. Not so down. when it's sold, what do people do with the money? So let's say you've got, you got, you got, got a billion dollars worth of piss now, or I don't know, whatever the number is, $500 million worth of GTA. What do you do with the money? You, you get, all of a sudden, you've got this extra money. What do you do with it? Yeah, so essentially, Yago, what he's saying is that the 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 token you get airdrop, the, the token you get airdrop will drop in price, obviously. Um, but then let's say it's a billion dollar airdrop. How many of them will actually claim? It doesn't matter what the token because the token that gets yeah, yeah I know is, is, the money is a new the, token. It's a new token, right? Yeah, the money will essentially cycle into Bitcoin. That's the point you make. Well, into so and I wonder why people think this is a Ponzi scheme. The money will go. Yeah. The money will go into usually the flow of money goes into the the other tokens on the same chain. So like, for example, a Solana airdrop token would usually pump other Solana projects and would pump Solana and, and other chains, including Bitcoin. But the biggest pump usually happens in the country or in the chain where the airdrop actually takes place. Ryan, I saw you had your hand up. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, I think there's some logic here uh, that holds... Your mic isn't working, Mario. Oh, you can just get a bit closer, Mario. Oh, I hear him, Mario. All good. Yeah, no. All good. Great, great. Yeah, when the Gito airdrop happened um, last week or whenever it was on Solana, this, the price of Solana rose like 10%. I think that makes sense. People are getting this massive airdrop on the, the Solana ecosystem. I think the minimum airdrop was valued at, at 5000 when it first dropped, and then it quickly doubled. And then you have people getting airdrops in the hundreds of thousands. And so a lot of people are just going to sell that right back into, uh, you know, for, for Solana and pump the price of Solana up. And then they're going to go back and airdrop farm more projects right after that on Solana, like, like Margin Phi or Jupiter. And so I think it's just this, this, you know, kind of, I don't know, super cycle of, I know that word, that word's banned, 
Uh, but there's this cycle that happens on the individual ecosystem from people just trying to airdrop farm, then taking those gains, selling them, buying the asset native to the ecosystem like Solana, uh, and then repeating that. That's exactly it. That's, that's exactly it. So like, kind of like, to be honest, what I did was I got my GTA airdrop. When I got to like $3.40 and $3.80, I sold um, uh, the airdrop and I went and bought more Solana. And you can see that a lot of people actually repeated my behavior. How is this not a Ponzi scheme? Uh, because these, I'll tell you how, because these, but, so let's say you have a world where, the, where for example, Jito doesn't exist. And then all of a sudden, so then the value added in that world is whatever the value is before Jito actually exists. As soon as you drop Jito, you now have a world where Jito does exist and, G, and the value that Jito adds is added to that country. So the GDP of the country actually goes up because there's more production in that country. And so think about like a country and think about it like GDP of a country. I mean, say like before GTO existed, X amount of value was in the system. As soon as you, you add a new factory, which is, which is say GTO or whatever else, you add the GDP. Hey, Corey, dare I ask you what you think of this? I mean, you know where I'm going to net out. Like, it just doesn't matter. These airdrops obviously aren't causing Bitcoin pumps. Um, you know, there's just a lot more going on that matters a lot more. Things like, you know, dollar was weakening for a minute, front running the ETFs. I mean, tech is pumping. So anybody that has Bitcoin in their risk on trade bucket still obviously has been been pumping that as well. So I think there are, uh, you know, four or five factors that more than account for everything that we've seen over the last two months. With isn't it coincidental that every time we have an airdrop, a big airdrop, a meaningful airdrop Bitcoin pumps? Or are you going to tell me that it's just a coincidence? I mean, I have to stay Definitely. I don't think there are that many people that are even aware of these things. You don't need to be aware. You don't need to be aware because the money is coming into the ecosystem. You don't need to be aware of it. Whether you're aware of it or not, it's, it's still happening. There's not really money coming into the ecosystem, though. You're just doing an airdrop of a token. And, and you, you keep saying a billion dollars, but obviously it's not a billion dollars. And these people that are interested in like, you know, pumping and dumping ordinals or whatever BRC20s aren't usually the type of people to like buy and hold Bitcoin anyway. But this is not a Bitcoin ordinals discussion. This is a discussion around uh, Arbitrum airdrop and a Jito airdrop and a Blur airdrop. It's got nothing to do with ordinals. Okay, yeah, so, so why, would, why, would that have, why would that pump the price of Bitcoin? Because, as I said, imagine that you all of you had no money, and then all of a sudden, imagine that something. Right, but big, it's not a billion dollars, man. It's not a billion dollars that's being airdropped, well, right? It's, you know, Arbitrum was a billion dollars. And most of these people that are like signing up and you know being in a position where they're going to be like receiving. So these are these are altcoin airdrops going to Correct. places like Arbitrum. So these are the types of people that are like trying to fill their moon bags, hoping that there's like a high beta pump for crypto. Like the only natural seller of Bitcoin in the market today is crypto traders. There's nobody else that wants to sell Bitcoin. Exactly. It's only people so, that think that there's going to be like a bigger pump from some moon bag. So Corey, you know, let's take Run's theory and your theory and combine them. You're saying that there's very few sellers on the market. Run is saying that there's marginal buyers who are entering the market. Now, where I, I yeah, I, it's an empirical question and it would be interesting to examine this statistically, but on a theoretical basis, what he's saying could potentially happen 
And I, I disagree with you that these people don't want to buy Bitcoin. My argument would be that basically everyone wants to buy Bitcoin. Correct. Correct. I said in this market dynamic, these types of people that are like crypto, you know, kind of just trying to play high beta crypto pump games are not the type of people to buy and hold Bitcoin in a bull market. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I, I think I'm a great example. And I think there's lots of people like me where I, I mess around with Solana ecosystem tokens. And then when, when I get an opportunity to sell, I sell and I put 50% of my profits into Bitcoin and 50% into, in, into somewhere else. And I think there's many, many, many people out there that take their profits into Bitcoin. Yeah. So look, the, the way this has worked in Ethereum is that you know, there are people who sell these things and there are people who buy these things. Uh, the people who buy these things essentially send their ether to people who sell these things. So 1% of NFTs, you know, like the the bad kids thing on Cosmos that I have, um, you know, Popaji Penguins or CryptoPunks kind of make it. And the 99% of those essentially just lead to the sellers collecting more ETH at the expense of the you know, buyers. So Bitcoin is different from Ethereum. I think Ethereum is like gas fees. You know, we are supposed to use it as casino chip and for all sorts of, you know, utilities similar to, I guess, other Altelman tokens. I think of Bitcoin as something, you know, I hold for my kids and you know, I die and they, they take with them. It's a bit like gold in Indian families. So, you know, I, I, I think as much as I like this innovation arc, I don't really think Bitcoin is needs to become ethereum those are fundamentally different assets and i think a lot of this stuff is just people selling you know there are some good projects in that space that udi and you know uh, eric have been doing but there is a lot of trash that's getting sold and i think it just means people will lose their bitcoin for trash they never look at i want to dig uh, into uh almost because uh, i mean Corey came on all guns blazing around the ordinals and stuff like that. And I know there's, there's a lot of pushback from the Bitcoin community around around these ordinals um, and these inscriptions. For those people who don't know what they are, it's uh, essentially what you're doing is you're using every Satoshi as an NFT and you're inscribing, you can call it an NFT on every Satoshi. Um, and uh, the Bitcoin community is quite split where some people are saying, you know, you should be able to do whatever you want with Bitcoin because it's completely a permissionless change and it's not owned by anyone. And there's a small sector of Bitcoin maxis, and not only Bitcoin maxis, but Bitcoin-specific use maxis that are now saying that this is a really bad thing for Bitcoin and kind of want to end it, to be honest. And I, I don't know, with the way Corey came in, uh, guns blazing, I think that he's probably of the, of the, um, the opinion that uh, these should be, uh, that they should be t- uh, ended. Am I right? Uh, no, you'd be wrong. You'd be wrong. Um, okay. So first off, I think the the framing that this is something that a lot of Bitcoiners care about one way or the other is pretty false. I think it's something that seems really important in crypto circles, but it's a tiny little corner of the the Bitcoin user base that that gives a shit one way or the other, frankly. Um, and it's it's interesting to watch for the rest of us that are just kind of focused on Bitcoin adoption. And this is kind of a sideshow that's pumping fees. And obviously some miners care about it a lot because uh, it, it pumps their bags and, and lets them mine extra fees each block, things like that. But I think for the most part, it's it's something that, you know, no one should rush to judgment on. I've seen incredibly intelligent people uh, say very smart and convincing things on both sides. And so I think it, it, it makes a lot of sense not to be reactive when looking at something that, that has increased fees, that has used Bitcoin as, as the system is currently 
uh, set up. And, you know, it is, <laughs> I don't want to say the word exploit because it's a loaded term, but it is a bit of an exploit. It was an unintended side effect of activating Taproot that this was able to be done so easily, um, putting JPEGs on the blockchain. What's uh, the downside? That said, what's the downside? What's the downside? I, I, I see uh, the upside. I struggle yeah, the downside. The downside. Oh, the downside is crowding out um, transactions from uh, people just wanting to have like lower cost transactions to to transact, to open and close Lightning channels, things like that. It's just made it really, really, really expensive to use the chain versus what it's been historically. At a time when you know, obviously, there's a lot of people around the world that still use the base chain to transact, and, and they're being priced out. So there are a lot of people that that want to see Bitcoin used. You know, as as intended, as as a monetary chain and and used for transactions for for monetary purposes rather than for storing JPEGs. So that's kind of the, so, yeah, I mean, the argument I, against. I mean, I spoke. I mean, I I interviewed Michael Saylor about a couple of months ago, and one of the things that he said when we inter- when he interviewed, he said, you know, it started off today with um with with jpegs but later on it's going to be like final will and testament and documents that, that are really important that should live you know in an immutable fashion on the on, on the bitcoin network and he sees that as a as a real like massive 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 use case of bitcoin yeah i mean so that's that's using horizontal storage instead of vertical storage i think what you'll see is people will wake up that that's kind of just a narrative that that ordinal folks are using to pump their bags it sounds a lot like everything on the blockchain or everything in NFTs. Well, now everything in ordinals, it's really just kind of like find and replace on the same pitch we've been seeing since like 2016. And it's, it just doesn't make any sense. What you will see is things like open timestamps where that's actually good enough to be able to tell that something wasn't altered. Like they just used in the, uh, the Guatemala elections, they used open timestamps to say, hey, these tally sheets, we've recorded that, you know, this, this data, you hash it with the Merkle tree, you put it in the blockchain. And now you know for sure that it hasn't been changed since then, at least. And that's good enough for most of these things. At the end of the day, if you're trying to link digital space to meet space, you're in the world of contracts, you're in the world of humans. And so, you know, it just, the amount of data, if you were talking about what evidently, you know, Michael Saylor had a conversation with you talking about storing some data like that. Think of 8 billion people trying to do that. It's just not going to happen. You need to think about uh, vertical storage, hashing it, open timestamps, not trying to put the whole damn thing on the blockchain. It's never going to scale. Yeah, I mean, but maybe there's a world where, um, maybe there's a world where like important stuff goes in the Bitcoin network and, and, and unimportant stuff is outpriced and basically goes onto some cheaper network, maybe goes onto Solana, maybe goes onto like an AVAX or something. Yeah, it's possible. It could be something like that. I mean, Satoshi back in the day said, you know, hey, if you want to do, I mean, trading cards and stuff like that, put it on a different chain, you know, and he had this idea that there would be kind of like data storage change of some kind. I don't think he would have forecast <laughs> the world that we're in in the last six years. But uh, nevertheless, he did talk about things like that. Um, but yeah, I, I would heavily suggest um, looking into open timestamps. I'm definitely doing a little bit of homework there and trying to get up to speed. You know, this stuff is pretty highly technical. And so, you know, unless you're talking to somebody that really deeply understands tech and that does not include most of the people that are that are pumping ordinals and it doesn't include most of the people that are sort of having a reactionary um you know moment trying to get them out, most of these people, including people with technical jobs don't actually understand 
what the right thing is to do here. I'm not going to call it any names because, you know, this would very much include me too, which is why I'm biding my time and just kind of giving it, giving it a little room to breathe and trying to let smarter heads prevail. I don't think there are very, sorry, sorry. No, I don't think there are very many people who think that ordinals is going to be the standard by which this is done. Ordinals is, I think, pretty obviously to everyone, including Corey, when he published it, an extremely hacky protocol. I think people are excited about ordinals because they see it as an example of additional protocols that people can bring to Bitcoin, which allow more sophisticated use cases. Things like timestamping plus smart contracts, the ability to introduce NFTs, the ability to introduce uh, uh, side chains, the ability basically to introduce any any execution environment into Bitcoin over time. So we've seen ordinals, there's uh, up and coming taproot assets, there's runes, which is uh, what uh, Corey is now working on. Um, ZK coins, which Robin is working on. There's just a huge amount of, of, of new protocols coming in. So I don't think people are excited about ordinals. I think everyone understands that ordinals is sort of just like the, like the, the alpha version. Yeah, it's a proof of concept. Uh, Corey, well, while we have you, um, ETF approval, just uh, a couple of questions. Firstly, are you confident in January? I mean, I saw that there was another big thing that actually happened, which was that the, that Google changed their advertising policy to allow for, uh, I don't want to misquote, but so they're saying in January 2024, Google will update cryptocurrency and related product policy to clarify the requirements for the adver- advertisement of cryptocurrency coin trusts. Beginning January 29, 2024, advertisers offering cryptocurrency coin trust targeting the United States may advertise those products and services when they meet the criteria required by, by Google. So, I mean, it looks like everything's aligning for a January approval of an ETF, right? Man, if you knew, it took me, oh God, it probably took 15 months, maybe longer to get approved for Google ads. And then we got disallowed again for like six months. And then it took like another six months to get back on. It's been the most ridiculous. And I, I used to work at Google and I know a lot of people like that have gotten pretty high up now. And it still was that much of a pain in the ass to be able to advertise anything related to Bitcoin on Google and these guys come in and they're not even approved yet and they're already approved. It just cracks me up. But yeah, that, that seems like a pretty bullish sign, doesn't it, Ram? So yeah, does it, do you think that, am I reading too much into it or do you think that... Like, no, they know, it's, they know it's coming and they don't want to do it on like January 9th if these things get approved on January 8th, right? So it makes a lot of sense for them to, to roll it out. That's pretty smart of them to do it. Just before, and do, think, and do you think that the, the ETF is in the is the ETF approval is already priced in, or do you think that there could still be like some kind of I don't want to call it a pump on the tenth of January, but I mean, like, uh, well, I mean, listen, I think if it gets approved, you're entering a like now the money can actually start to flow in. So there's, you know, there's the the hodler and the trader pump that's been going on front running this news and then once they open it and they start the advertising and i think there will probably be you know it it will be interesting to see if there's a couple of super bowl ads definitely hearing some rumblings from friends in new york that work at agencies about this wow um you know so like i mean you know but but if it's if it's not that then it'll be you know they'll use it during the nba playoffs and you know it'll be in they'll just be bombarded constantly i mean we all celebrate when there's a bitcoin ad every couple of years somebody does a nice one you know the 
twins did drop. Oh no, I guess it was GBTC that dropped gold a few years back. And you know, you can hate GBTC and still like that they produced a nice ad. Uh, Spiral, uh, the Cash App uh, block Spiral crew did that that fuzzy guy a few weeks ago, and we all loved that. And Coinbase's new ads are spectacular. I mean, it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, and they're and they're everywhere. I was watching a college basketball game on Saturday, and they showed it seven times. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. And, you know, so I think these ads being about Bitcoin specifically is the biggest thing that's going on in the space right now is we're kind of swapping out the top of funnel that we've had for the last six years, which is get sucked in by crypto and then wade through that and figure out that there's this Bitcoin thing. And now the top of funnel going forward is going to be Bitcoin itself from the most trusted, largest financial institutions on the planet. So I think it is... I think people are yeah, actually, a, a, uh, a bidding war for same. clients. Yeah, bidding war for clients uh, promoting Bitcoin by twelve companies at once wasn't on my necessarily my bingo card long ago, and it's it's a beautiful thing. Hey guys, somebody's got to get so the AUM. For, uh, yeah, thanks so much for having me up for a little bit. Uh, this is going to be my my time slot. I'm going to try to join you guys more often for this thirty minutes before taking the kids to school. But congratulations, Mario, on an incredible. Uh, you're going to cross 10 million listens for that spaces yesterday. I listened to it. It was some of the most entertaining. I, it might be the most entertaining bit of media. You know, I can't, I can't think of anything live that's more entertaining than that, other than maybe like your favorite sports team winning a championship. That was just unbelievable. And, and credit to the spaces team for creating a product that can freaking do this kind of thing. It really is a special moment in time. So congrats to you guys. Thanks, Corey. Uh, Matthew, go ahead, and then uh, then uh, Austin. Matthew, then Austin. Go ahead. Yeah. Hey, hey, everybody. Uh, I, I just wanted to, to chime in a little bit on the on the ETF commentary uh, because it is increasingly clear that we are um, engaging a lot more uh, with prospective clients who are kicking the tires on these dozen ETFs. So the the largest regulated. Investment advisors, um, Wall Street brokerage houses, you know, will be allocating to these pro- to these products. The, the, one of the major questions is: Will they be allocating only on an unsolicited basis, where the client actually just you know has to call up and say, "I want one of these Bitcoin ETFs. You know, help me buy one." Th- that will clearly happen. Whether or not that they're going to allocate in discretionary accounts is a big question that will probably not happen on day one because these um, investment advisors don't have a framework for valuing Bitcoin yet, at least the majority of them. And they also may be restricting these products to clients with, uh, say, 10 million in investable assets rather than 1 million or or 100K. So the, the engagement is definitely picking up. Um, you know, Vanek uh, had a filing with the SEC on Friday via our exchange partner, and we revealed the ticker of our uh, spot Bitcoin ETF, which will be HODL, H-O-D-L, which is the cap that I'm wearing on my Twitter profile here. So, um, you know, thank you, everybody, for for your support. Uh, with the Ethereum Futures ETF, we committed to give back a percentage of the revenues uh, to core developers uh, of the Ethereum protocol. We're uh, working on something you know, similar for, for the Bitcoin. So we're trying to um, straddle uh, these two worlds of uh, TradFi and, and DeFi. And it's really encouraging the prospective 
client feedback uh, that we've had on the on the spot products. Um, I just, you know, I think that there was some questions here about like what's driving this altcoin rally and and if the uh, if airdrops are bullish or bearish. Like the fact is, people sell their airdrops when they think that crypto is going to go down, and they farm and sell into USDC every single day. And when they think crypto is going to go up, then they hodl uh, those airdrops, you know, believing that they're bootstrapping the next big network. So it all swings back, I think, to what happens to Bitcoin. That's where the quantum of money is so large. Uh, and if the, if the spot ETF flows are, are encouraging in January, uh, knock on wood that they come, we're estimating $2.5 in the first quarter. Uh, we just released a, a top 15 predictions for 2024. I'll link to it in the comments to the spaces. And, uh, you know, please, everyone, everyone check it out. That's all. Yeah, we started to go over those actually last week and sort of got disrupted. Mario, we still have to do that. I actually it's wrote a newsletter on that this morning, Matt. I thought the predictions were great. Um, really impressive stuff. Um, Austin, go ahead. Hey, everybody. Um, so as somebody who's worked in the asset management space, I think one of the things we're probably going to encounter here, and you know, Matthew was speaking to it just a moment ago, is you're going to have this initial wave of interest. But I think the long-term effect of the ETF approvals will come probably, you know, one year plus out, which is to say you're going to have advisors over time, especially in the RIA space, but also elsewhere, who start integrating this into model portfolios. And once you've done that, you are going to have long-term sustained buy interest as clients come in, as clients allocate, as money comes in to Bitcoin. And even, you know, if you look at total capital markets, even a 1% allocation to Bitcoin and model portfolios across the majority of something like the RIA space will move this massively, especially in an environment where we don't have a lot of sellers right now. And so to some extent, what I want to get the idea out there for people is you may see an initial inflow, and then it may look like nothing is happening for quite a while here. Understand how slow it is to make the sausage in a lot of these institutional places, right? Like when I was at JP Morgan, projects would take us 24, 36 months and we would call that fast, right? Which is quite a contrast to being in the crypto space. So just telling people the ETFs are a long game there. Just like, you know, honestly, I, I hear a lot of like the talking about airdrops and find it all very short term tactical. Right. If we're looking at Bitcoin on a real basis instead of a nominal basis, you can knock, you know, 10% plus off the price for inflation. We still have a long way to run to even get back to the highs of, you know, previous cycles. Yeah. I think of ETF approval is probably more likened to the halving, right? Everybody gets excited and having happens, but it takes many, many months, six to nine months to really see any major effect from that supply decrease. I think the AUM flowing into the ETF slowly over time would be kind of similar to that. I don't know if anybody shares that view, but that's kind of my base case. Um, and I think that makes a lot of sense. Ryan, I saw you give a th thumbs up. Is that kind of how you view it? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly how I view it. I mean, we we uh, we have a survey. I think I've talked about it before here, but we we survey financial advisors and. Uh, investment professionals and every year and there's something around 60 percent of them don't expect an etf to happen in 2024 this was taken like over the month of november uh and into december a little bit this last survey and our preliminary results say that more than 60 percent of the you know investment professional uh investor base doesn't expect an etf to happen in 2024 which just goes to show that while we're all paying attention to this every single day because we're in the space and we uh, are highly allocated to crypto, whether it's from your, your career or just your personal investments, I think 
we're following it and, and expecting an ETF uh, with a high likelihood in January or at least by March of, of next year. But the, the people that the ETF is built for, it's not necessarily on the majority of their radar. I actually don't think it's on the majority of their radar and, and agree that it's going to take time for uh, clients to start asking about it and, uh, you know, more of a mainstream coverage of, of Bitcoin as a legitimate asset versus a speculative asset. And I think the Bitcoin ETF helps kind of bring it from this being considered a speculative asset by the likes of, you know, CNBC and, and Fox Business News. And, and uh, you know, even, you know, you've seen Bloomberg kind of like change its tune on how it's covering Bitcoin uh, over the past six months or, or 12 months. And so, uh, yeah, I do think it's a where I get, game. Ron, where can I get this research or where can I get some reference to what you just mentioned in terms of numbers? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll send it to you. Uh, I'll send it over to you. All right, you want to send it to me in a DM, right? Yeah, yeah, I can do that. Perfect. That'll be great. Speaking of being over-allocated to crypto, one of the bigger stories that keeps being told here is that uh, Kathy Wood is selling the hell out of Coinbase stock and people are freaking out to don't understand that she has a maximum, I think, 10% allocation and literally has to sell as it goes up. I just keep seeing that story and it drives me nuts that people are saying that uh, we should all be bearish on crypto because Kathy Wood is selling Coinbase stock. She keeps, saying, she keeps, saying, she keeps saying the same thing. She keeps saying, we rebalance our portfolio once a month or once a quarter. And every time they rebalance, the best performers are going to be sold. That's just how big funds work. Because otherwise, they become unbalanced. And I know a guy who was very who was very unbalanced once in the Luna ecosystem, and I know how he landed up. <laughs> I know a guy who was a little bit uh, overbalanced myself as well. Not necessarily Luna, but I think we all learned that lesson the hard way about uh, reallocating it in a bull market. I don't think you can blame her for... Uh, for taking profit and reallocating, it just drives me nuts when you see the bad takes on these things. It's endless. Mm, crazy. It, is, anybody, is, is anybody worried about this leverage and the correction? I, you, what specifically are you talking about? The fact that it's still so high on all coins? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, that concerns me. I mean, not not. I don't think it concerns me to trigger another bear market, but I think that uh, we can definitely see more downside. You know what? Um, you know what? You know what? You know what con con concerns me that people are so convinced about this ETF that the market just can't go down. That the market cannot go down. Every time we get a slight dip, the the, the the market quickly rebounds because everyone says, "Oh, well, you know, that was that was great," but there's an ETF coming up, so. Yeah, Basically, always, the point being that if we see a rejection, holy shit, like watch out below or just uh, that uh, it's a rational exuberance around something that might not mean as much as you as people think it does. All right, Travis. Oh, I mean, I mean, I was just going to say, historically, when when people feel safe about BTC being relatively stable, a lot of times that is the backdrop under which alts will go wild. Because I think people feel like you have sort of, you know, safety in, uh, you know, Papa Bear asset being okay. And as long as you've got the Bloomberg ETF guys that are, you know, throwing out 90 plus percent, 95, 99, I, you know, I don't know where they are right now. But, I mean, it's been, it's been pretty incredible. Taking a step back, it's been pretty incredible that the crypto market, you know, BlackRock filed their ETF, what was that, like second week in June, I think. And it's, it's, it's more or less been 
the only, certainly the overwhelmingly dominant narrative of the crypto market since then. It's been pretty impressive that the entire back part of this year has been really totally dominated by the market collectively inching towards, uh, you know, coming to believe that these ETFs are um, going to get inevitably approved and then narrowing in the timeline. And then there were, you know, if you think back to like October or beginning of November, there was uh, some stuff that happened that made people think that maybe it was going to be November or early December that they were going to get approved. And we somehow managed to like pull that timeline off the table and then narrow in on this second week of January timeline without price really pulling back at all. And then, you know, obviously skyrocketing higher uh, recently. It's like, it's been, it's been, it's been pretty impressive. I mean, I think it's probably a good thing. Like if we were, you know, say the first week of January, we were at 48, like you would feel, or I would feel more nervous about a potential fade the news or the potential for initial inflows to be disappointing relative to expectations. Um, you know, I think. What do you, what do you think? What do you think the expectation is? Like I'm, like I, I'm, I know that like I'm in a little bubble here. I've heard things like one percent and two percent of AUM in the first year. Like, what do you reckon? What do you think the market is expecting? Yeah, I, I don't like. I mean, those timelines, even two and a half billion in the first quarter, um, the, which the other guy was talking about here. That's like, you can, like I would shorten it up even more than that. So, Bitto was the fastest ever. The futures Bitcoin ETF is the fastest ETF ever to a billion dollars. That was, I think, two days, right? Yeah, and it was either two or it was either two or three days. Um, yeah. I think it was two. Day, I think it was two days. And like, so this should be in the neighborhood of that, or it's going to be disappointing. I think relative to expectations. Now, if we were trading forty, or we were trading high thirties instead of mid forties or high forties. When it got released, then I think you just have less, you know, you, you would just have less of a puke, you know, just just because of where you are on the chart, basically. In, in my head, if you get if you you should get a billion dollars of inflows within the first five days. I don't I don't really understand why that wouldn't happen if Bitto was able to get there that quickly. And this is a fundamentally meaningfully better product. Yeah, a lot of people, Travis, are saying it's because we were at the peak of a bull market, even the experts, but I 100% agree with you. They did it in 48 hours, and it feels like we're in a pretty bullish market right now. I agree with you. I don't understand the dampened expectation. That's what I wanted to, to ask. Like, do you guys think that the fact that the price is high is a good thing or a bad thing? So, like, on the one hand, good thing for inflows. Well, yeah, everything that's, I mean, think about all the things that have launched during bear markets, even the Ethereum futures, which I didn't expect that much interest in, but like flat, flat. But Black. yeah, so the, the question is, do you think these institutions are looking at it and going, nah, this is too expensive for us, we'll wait for a dip? Or do you think the institutions are going, look, it doesn't matter for us, we're looking at this from an, on a 10-year time horizon, and if it is, whether it's 48 or 46 or 41, it doesn't really matter. I think it's the latter, but I think um, the, the point about the market is really the interest on media, the marketing, just generally people being excited about crypto versus being depressed and saying, I don't want to touch this. I think we're just reaching that 
zone where we're all getting those, you know, we kind of joke about it, but we're all getting the calls. And I had three people who live in my neighborhood that I didn't even know knew what I do, like texting me about Bitcoin this week. It's happening. You know what I mean? And so uh, I think that part of it, the marketing that's going to come with it. And then your person who maybe has just forgotten about it for a long time, checks the price for the first time and they say 44, that's not that bad, right? It's not 17. Um, so I think there's just the general groundswell is better if people are viewing the asset class positively, which we all know is follows the price. It's an incredibly reflexive asset. We all know that. It's, it's an incredibly reflexive asset. And people, like you said, have a really hard time buying it when it's down a lot, for sure. So I think this general price range is probably a good thing. I think you get a billion plus dollars of inflows in the first one to three days and you rip higher from almost any price. And the price is like a little lower, say high 30s, low 40s versus mid to high 40s, then you probably rip higher. You know, um, I think if you get to the end of day five and you're like at less than 500, say you're like at 500 million or less of inflows, I mean, I would think you would puke on that. Yeah, that would be, I think that'd be quite disappointing because people are going to be anchoring this, I think, to bid out. Well, okay, that's quite an interesting perspective. I mean, I mean, I'd, be, I'd be pretty disappointed if there wasn't a billion in a week or two, for sure. Travis. Yeah, totally. That would be, yeah, that'd be, that'd be a, that'd be a big problem. I think that would be a, a that'd be way off of expectations. And then I think when you try to stretch it out to like first month, first quarter, then it, that it gets a lot more opaque to me. Then you start trying to trying to get into the machines of the asset management you know, you know, the wheels of the machine of the asset management business and all of the, this minutia around what type of clientele is this going to be good for? How many people, you know, it's like how many people are going to sell their spot Bitcoin, their, their spot Bitcoin and buy the ETF and the potential for that to actually have some kind of wonky price action around that because there's like a bit of a delay. I think there's actually a good amount of people. I have some normie friends that are like, I think probably pretty good litmus tests for, you know, just your average run of the mill normie that owns some, some Bitcoin and likes Bitcoin for, you know, sort of, you know, insurance policy against monetary and fiscal policy, irresponsibility type of stuff. And like, there's a lot of these guys that are scared shitless of getting hacked. They're, they are terrified of self-custody. So they keep it on Coinbase and they're terrified of keeping it on Coinbase because they're scared of getting hacked. And so the amount of exposure that they have in Bitcoin is lower than they otherwise would would be. And they're going to sell their spot Bitcoin, depending on where their tax basis is. You know, I think tax basis consideration matters there. But, you know, I think there definitely is going to be people just selling spot Bitcoin and buying the ETF because they're like, thank God now. I don't have to worry about all of this crazy stuff. It really does just scare normies so bad. Scares me. Yeah. I mean, honestly, yeah, I I went through, I I had one of those like mild uh, hardware wallet, not working three hour wastes time sets of my life last week that no normal person would have suffered. They would have thought they lost everything. And every time I even like, I, you know, I interviewed Pascal from Ledger and he said, well, there was that one time. And you're talking about the CEO of Ledger, where uh, I got so cute and I hid my wallet from myself and never found it. You know, I mean, it, it happens to the best of people in the space. So I agree with you. There's a lot of people, as much as we would love to push people towards the idea of self-custody, who want nothing to do with it. Yeah. 
One thing, one other thing that I don't know if we've, I know we haven't talked about today, but it's going to be fascinating to watch what percent of total Bitcoin volume is starts to trade through these ETFs and how much that changes the market structure of Bitcoin price discovery. And Bitcoin That's a great question. I mean, do we think we'll see meaningfully less volume on centralized exchanges? And like, will it be additional volume or will it be subtracting from what we have already seen when the ETF starts trading? That's I have gonna no be, idea. It's going to be really fascinating to watch it, <clears throat> but that's going to change. Like if you imagine a world where like you fast forward, say a year and like 25% of all Bitcoin volumes happen sort of like by proxy of the ETFs. And then you have maybe like another 25% that happens on regulated KYC onshore exchanges. And then maybe like another 25% that happens on, you know, regulated KYC offshore exchanges. And then you have like another 25% that happens, you know, you know, in, in kind of KYC free type of trading, DEX trading in, in some capacity, something like that. And just sort of like what that does to price discovery. It's just going to be very fascinating to watch. Yeah. And if that number is bigger than 25% that's going through ETFs, like, I mean, I mean you're, you're, you should really should expect price discovery to, to change, the mechanics of it to change, the drivers of it to change, because the participants are going to be drastically different. The market makers for for these ETFs are going to be, you know, the largest market makers in the world, but they're not stepping into crypto exchanges to make the market. They're they're making it in the ETF. And then the ETF is sort of beholden to these redemption and creation mechanisms that are going to be served by, you know, the this sort of like ring of of OTC desks. Um Coinbase institutional desk and then, you know, a few few other large OTC desks and that flow sort of, you know, in some ways it kind of does end up on the screens like the OTC flow sort of in some, you know, at, at a certain size. I think it does end up hitting the screens, so to speak, hitting the, the, the exchanges where you can see it in some capacity. But it's just going to be that's just a very different market than than what we've been experiencing, you know, forever. It's going to be interesting. I think it's going to be really, really interesting to see how that weighs out. I think in general, it's just going to be more and more volume everywhere. But uh, maybe that's my echo chamber optimism. I mean, it seems like liquidity would be higher. And so volatility would be lower. And the the volatility characteristics, the liquidity characteristics of Bitcoin you know, I did traditional for a decade before I got into crypto and the liquidity characteristics of Bitcoin, you know, sometimes it's as it's, it's liquid as water and you can just buy or sell $50 million and you don't even price doesn't move at all. And um, it's just literally just it's incredibly liquid. And then when it starts to get moving, the liquidity collapses by, you know, 80 percent or more. And last night was actually a perfect example of that. You can see it in, you can look at order book depth and things like that. And like, that's not really how traditional asset classes move. Yes, of course, when volatility increases, um, liquidity decreases, but that, that sort of feedback mechanism, that feedback loop 
and traditional is not anywhere remotely close to the way that Bitcoin acts. And so you can imagine these spot ETFs shifting Bitcoin liquidity characteristics closer towards like kind of how traditional asset assets trade, how how Apple stock trades, something like that. Or, or, or let's pick something that has a market cap a little bit closer to, to Bitcoin, something a little smaller than Apple. But like it, like it, it's you can imagine liquidity not vanishing in the ETFs to the same degree that liquidity vanishes um, in in spot Bitcoin trading. Yeah, I mean, people literally trading. take their coins off exchanges and put them in self-custody. That's not going to be right. happening with an ETF, right? Yeah. And market makers just do these, you know, it's like, <laughs> I mean, you know this, Scott, you've been trading this market a long time. Liquidity or sort of like, like, like uh, uh, liquidation waterfalls is a, hallmark characteristic of Bitcoin price action. You would agree with that, right? Yeah, 100% we saw it today. Yeah, it's right, like one of the defining yeah. characteristics of Bitcoin price action is like, oh, you get these 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 cascading uh, uh, liquidations in both directions. Market makers know this, and thus one of the uh, uh, prime characteristics of Bitcoin price action is that these get caused. You see when potential for these things build up and then there's rug pulls in either direction to cause these things to happen. And this is a defining characteristic of Bitcoin price action. And there's a real potential for that to be significantly diminished, um, you know, in calendar year 2024. You could fast forward a year from today and that could have that feature could be significantly diminished. And that's just like, you know, you don't want to I don't think you can overstate how I mean, it's a big change. Go ahead, Simon. Yeah, I think um, custody is going to be one of the most interesting ones to watch from here because this redefines custody. Um, you know, those that self-custody. One one thing I didn't predict is that we would have like 10 Bitcoin ETFs because uh, for the last decade, I've always been imagining you'd get this one player. Um, but then you have 10 Bitcoin ETFs that are bringing in all of the largest pools of capital around the world. And they're all using Coinbase. And so Coinbase custody becomes a very centralized custodian. Are we going to get the TradFi custodians? You know, traditionally, you've had your bank in New York, Mellon. Uh, do they all start stepping in right now? Or is it the experience of the, the one that has been able to custody at scale for the longest period without having to report any hacks. Um, I mean, I'm pretty surprised we haven't seen State Street and more yeah. talk of Bank of New York Mellon as a part of this, for sure. I yeah, think they, then, got, I think they got spooked. I, th I, I, I think that those two in particular got well, spooked Travis, after, after FTX yeah. collapsed. And, I uh, think they got uh, spooked, but also remember, now I can't remember the specifics, I don't want to misquote, but there was either a floated law or something proposed that they were going to have to hold dollars one-to-one -one for all crypto assets they custodied, which yeah. literally made it impossible for them to even consider doing it. Yeah, and then, and then you've got like um, the intersection between how it interacts with a bank's balance sheet. Um, you know, when we've already started to see the challenges of having to match up your assets and liabilities, fractional reserve, all of those things are, are to come. But I also think as you start going more exotic and you go you know, down, so obviously with Bitcoin, you've got a separated custodian node and a miner. 
But once you start to get into some of the proof of stake and governance plays, um, you know, where where those are, you know, those that own the token, like, are they going to pass those rights on to ETF? Who, how's the staking going to work? Who's going to control those networks? Essentially, you know, with Ethereum, you could just, through Ethereum ETFs with all these large players, I think you're going to end up with a network of these large pockets of stakers they're going to be involved in the future of governance where actually they're just pulling together and then you know much like Larry Fink has a in, in, or or the the organization BlackRock has an influential position in ESG because they can get themselves a shareholder vote uh, all the different companies around the world uh, that that's going to come to the staking networks as well as we go further and further down this so it's going to be a really interesting one to observe with lots of unintended consequences and interesting side effects. What what is Coinbase? Coinbase delegates their votes, don't they, for the ETH that customers stake on? How do they? Um, yeah, because um, most, most people have their own account, own their own Bitcoin with nothing, you know, well, like, yeah, they're a custodian in the middle, so they delegate. But then you've got Coinbase custody and how they deal with that. Um, but when you have a security in the middle, how you know, to me, I, I think it would operate in a similar structure to how voting works for shares and ETFs. And, and BlackRock is very influential on all the boards of all the companies in the world. It's such an insane statement. <laughs> think about it. Uh, BlackRock is extremely influential on every board of every company in the world. And effectively, just because of their indexing and the amount that they have to own of all of these things, that ends up being the case. They're, uh, which should show people how important it is that you have Larry Fink, who could go on TV and talk about anything, calling crypto a flight to safety, right? I mean, it, it's really, I think it's bigger than people realize. Austin, go ahead, and we're going to move towards wrapping after Austin. Yeah, absolutely. So I was going to say, you know, on, on the vein of a previous comment to bring things back around to some of the problems with the ETFs, the thing blocking most of the bank custodians is SAB 121, which is the SEC interpretive memo that basically tells custodians, if you have crypto assets, you have to treat it like you own those assets. When that interacts with bank capital rules, it basically makes the business totally impossible. So I wouldn't read this as State Street and Boney Mellon being spooked. I think they very much want to do the business. I would read this as U.S. regulators deliberately fucking it up so that they can't. Yeah, that's that's exactly my take. Just putting potential rules in place or just being purposefully vague enough that they can't really uh, enter with any sort of uh, confidence. Mario, you, uh, we good? I think we covered it all today, and I'm assuming that we're going to have a lot coming this week. Yeah, man, I think we're good to, to wrap up. Thanks, everyone, and we'll see, we'll see everyone again tomorrow, same time. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. All right, guys.